Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. As we come tonight to the end of our study in the book of Daniel, it's an encouraging book and a very encouraging uh, conclusion to the book. We're in Daniel chapter 12. If you're looking for it, it's after Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel in your Old Testament. Before we read this final chapter and come to the end, uh, let me remind you of a few chief things uh, that we have learned. Uh, Number one, this book emphasizes the sovereignty of God over the affairs of the world. In the language of uh, Daniel chapter 4, as mighty King Nebuchadnezzar learned it, the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So we saw that God humbled Nebuchadnezzar uh, because he was proud, but then in grace he lifted him up. In chapter 5, we saw God weighed Belshazzar in the balance and found him wanting and so took away the kingdom from him. In chapter 11, as we saw last week, God foretold the next 500 years of history, including his own frustrating the ambitions of rulers. Because God is sovereign. And so what we've been saying is that even in exile, in a fiery furnace, or in the lion's den, or even in martyrdom, the people of God may may have the assurance that he's got the whole world in his hand. And we can sing, he's got the itsy bitsy baby in his hand. He's got the mamas and the papas. In his hand, he's got you and me, brother, you and me, sister, in his hands. He has the whole world in his hands. He's sovereign. There's a second main message we've seen. This book also emphasizes the supremacy of the kingdom of God. It foretells, as we've seen, the coming of King Jesus, the Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7. In chapter 2, he's the stone that is cut out of rock by no human hand and it crushes the kingdoms of this world and yet that stone grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth that's Jesus in chapter 7 he's the son of man to whom dominion and glory and honor are given that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him And so we said, though, a little horn, as it's called throughout the book, a a small ruler may come, even one, as we saw, who will wear out the saints of God, whether that be an Antiochus Epiphanes from the 160s or an Antichrist-like figure, yet they are always, we have seen, like a well chained pit bull going this far and no farther. And in the end, Jesus will simply, as Paul says, wipe them out with the breadth of his mouth because his dominion is an everlasting dominion. The supremacy of God's king and his kingdom. And then we saw one other main thing. We also saw that not only the sovereignty of God and the supremacy of his kingdom and the suffering of his people in the midst of all that, but we saw the shared blessing of the people of God with 
Jesus. For we learned in chapter 7 that the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. In other words, where Jesus is, we shall be. What he possesses, we shall possess. What he rules, we shall rule with him because we are united to him and co-heirs with him of all things. We've seen all these things and much more in Daniel. And now tonight we turn to the end of the book and we hear again so many more encouraging words that await all who believe in Jesus. Let me invite you to give your attention to God's word from Daniel chapter 12. We'll pick up the reading at verse 1. This is the word of God. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way, 
till the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. And we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we would know the hope to which you have called us. Be exalted among us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. In the year 1540, two Scots, uh, Alexander Kennedy and Jerome Russell, were condemned to be burned at the stake for their faith. And as they plodded along to the execution site, Russell noticed some signs of depression in his companion, and so he heartened him uh, with uh, these words, brother, fear not. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The pain that we are to suffer is short and shall be light. But our joy and consolation shall never have an end. Let us therefore strive to enter into our master and savior by the same straight way which he has trod before us. Death cannot destroy us. For it is already destroyed by him for whose sake we suffer. And so they walked on to the stake. Because of the hope of glory, even in suffering. That's what we have here in Daniel chapter 12. The passage divides into two chunks, really. If you were with us last week, verses 1 to 4 is the tail end of the much larger vision beginning in chapter 11. It concludes that. And then chapter 12, beginning at verse 5 through 13, is, is really a, a second or another, uh, or a following anyway, vision and a postlude to chapters 10, 11, and 12. But that passage itself divides into two chunks. Uh, it divides by the two questions that are asked. An angel asks a question in 5 to 8, and then Daniel asks a question in 8 through 13. And so we have, very nicely for a preacher, Three things tonight. Uh, we have three things. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Let me give you the outline and where we're headed. In chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. We have the end is decreed. In chapter 12, verses 5 to 8, we have the end is definite. And beginning at verse 8, we have the end is delightful. The end is decreed, it's definite, and it's delightful. Let me invite you to consider the passage, verses 1 to 4 in the first place. We, we have the, the tail end, as we said, of a much longer vision, but it's the last glorious part to it. And uh, you can see why uh, some put it in with chapter 12, because of the other uh, hopeful things that are said. And in it we see that the end is decreed by God, the future is not left up to chance. The final outcome is not in the hands of men. Certain things will happen according to God's plan. The vision is sealed up and it cannot be altered. It is decreed by God and nothing can stop it, verse 4. What is it that is decreed? What is the unstoppable here? Well, 
Number one, trouble. Trouble is decreed. Look at the language of verse 1. At that time, Michael the archangel will arise in battle. He's going to fight for the people of God, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. Trouble. Now, interestingly, Jesus picks up the very language of this passage in Matthew 24. And let me invite you to turn there in your Bible for a moment, because I want you to see how our Savior handles this in Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 15 through 22. So a paragraph here. Matthew 24, beginning at verse 15. Listen to some of the language that we've heard uh, again and again from Daniel. So when you... So Jesus says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now listen, what is Jesus saying? He's telling his disciples that uh, they should anticipate the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And there was, as we remember, such an abomination at the time of Antiochus Epiphanes in the 160s. We've seen that in Daniel. And there was an abomination as well spoken of here by Jesus after his resurrection when in A.D. 70, The Romans wiped out Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and the people fled for their lives. There was indeed great tribulation. Even now, we continue to live in times of great tribulation. As Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Uh, And yet in Daniel 12 and Matthew 24, both, both places, the rescue of God's people is certain. There will be trouble, that is decreed, but there will be deliverance. There will be rescue. Notice back in Daniel 12, it says God's people will be delivered. All whose names are written in the book. And last last week we asked the question, what book is he referring to? Well, it's the citizen list of the kingdom of God, because God keeps a record of his people. He never loses track of us. He never forgets us. And who is the us? Well, go back to Matthew 24 and the language that Jesus uses there in 24. Verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, Jesus says, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Jesus uses the word elect here. He's speaking of those whose names are written in the book of life. As Revelation 17 verse 8 says, the names of the elect are written in that book before the foundation of the world. Or as Revelation 20 verse 15 warns about that book, if anyone's name was not 
found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. But as Revelation 21:27 assures us, those who enter heaven are only those whose names, and they do enter, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. God has a record. He keeps it. Jesus calls these people the elect. And as Ralph Davis says, you know how this is encouraging? In a time when God's people will be viewed as trash, scum, and faceless protoplasm, they are assured that their names are known and precious to God. Jesus tells us about election, not to make his people proud, not to make them exclusive or exclusionary, but to assure us and reassure us that God knows us and he never forgets us. And so we see that trouble is certain. We see that deliverance is certain for the people of God. We see that resurrection is also certain. Verse 2, back at Daniel chapter 12, and many will rise. <laughs> many here used not to, de- not to deny that all will rise, but to assert that it will not be few, but many. There will be many who will rise. And there are only two possibilities in that day of resurrection which awaits us all. Either the text says we will, notice the language, rise to everlasting life, Or we will rise to everlasting shame and contempt, says the prophet. No one will escape this resurrection. Only in Jesus can we escape God's contempt on that day. And so we are invited in this, the day of salvation, to repent and look to Jesus and look to him for everlasting life. That is offered to us tonight. But there is one more thing that is absolutely certain it is decreed, and that is glorification. Look again. When he says, those who belong to God through the grace of Christ will what? In verse 3, will rise to shine like the sun in all its brilliance. So we're looking not here just for the resurrection of the body out of the dust of the earth into a new body that lasts forever, but we're looking for transformation and glorification. We're looking for to be what we are not yet now. We are looking for the day when we will be changed and fully changed, and that is our hope, and it was the hope of an Old Testament saint as well. Tribulation is coming. Salvation is coming. Resurrection is coming. Glorification is coming. Daniel says all these things are decreed. They are certain. The reason the vision is sealed up. No one can tamper with it. The end is decreed. That's the first thing I want you to see. Now, turn your attention to verses 5 through 8. As there we see that the end is made definite by God. And here I mean something slightly different. Now, notice, uh, notice that in this part of the vision, you have this solemn oath that is taken in which God promises something certainly will happen, and it definitely will. Uh, notice uh, that Daniel sees not only the man who is clothed in linen, we were introduced to him at chapter 10, uh, the, this high priestly character, perhaps even Jesus pre-incarnate, 
in appearance, perhaps, but certainly a representative of God, a mighty one standing above the waters of the river or the stream. And, he's, and Daniel sees two angelic figures, one on either side of the banks of the river. And one of the angels asked the question that I'm sure Daniel wanted to ask. How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Now, multiple questions arise when you ponder that question. What does the angel mean till the end of these wonders? Which exact wonders is he referring to? Does he mean the first advent or the second advent of Christ? Does, and what does he mean by the expression time, times and half a time? And what does he mean by the shattering of God's holy people? Very important questions here. And in response to the question, notice that this Christ figure takes a solemn oath before heaven, raising not only as would have commonly been done in oath-taking one hand to heaven, but raising both the right and the left as to say, doubly certain is this oath. I swear before heaven and to God, it will be what? It will be for a time, and times, and half a time, and it will be until the shattering of God's holy people. Commentators have puzzled over what this expression means. I think the best way to view it, however long that time is, is that it will be for a time, then it will be for double that time, And then it will be just when you think it has no end, it will be for but just a half time more. It will be cut short, if you like. Even the language of Jesus in Matthew 24. In chapter 725, we first heard this expression. We heard that the saints of the Most High will be worn out by the oppressor. And it will be for a time, times, and half a time. In Revelation 21, verse 14, at the end of the Bible, we read that the church in the wilderness is nourished for that same length of time, time, times, and a half a time. One thing that makes interpreting Old Testament prophecy difficult is that the prophet spoke of the future, and that future included both the first and second comings of Christ. And in reading the prophets, we encounter what the traveler to Colorado does if they take I-70 through Colorado or through Kansas and into Colorado. From a distance, they see a mountain range, a massive mountain range after the pancake that is Kansas. And it looks only like one mountain range. But when you drive to the top of it, you see ranges to follow. So even on this side of the first coming, we might say, it's not always to see if the Old Testament prophet is speaking of, well, the events of the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus, along with the the persecution by the Romans and the destruction of the temple in AD 70, or, or is the prophet looking beyond that, past that, even past our day, to a final antichrist type figure and the final coming of Christ? Which mountain range are you considering? It's hard to know. Even Daniel confesses it, verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. You can take comfort in those words, dear friends. There are some hard interpretive issues happening here. But let me highlight 
that this text is saying that the time for these things is not indeterminate. It is well-defined by God. He knows exactly when these things will happen, when evil has done its worst, and the hopes of the people of God seem shattered, then God will act. Then God will intervene. If you know the name Arthur Wellesley, the Duke of Wellington, he was a general who never lost a battle. He was an amazing commander, never losing. He was a commander who, who was famous for his defensive tactics, not unlike Robert E. Lee. And in the last great battle of his life against Napoleon at Waterloo, he took up a, up a defensive position and his entire strategy was this. I'm going to put my army here and I'm going to let Napoleon pound away at that army all day until the Prussian reserves from Otto von Blucher's army or Blucher's army come and then I'm going to have Blucher roll up Napoleon's right flank and drive Napoleon into the Mediterranean. It was It was a great plan. The problem was Blucher's army had to march about 35 miles through muddy, muddy terrain. The plan was for him to get there in the middle of the day at 1 p.m. And at 2 p.m. he had not arrived. And at 3 he had not arrived. And at 4 he had not arrived. And and by 4, Napoleon had broken Wellington's army in two. And anybody who knows anything about 19th century military strategy knows that when your army is broken in two, you're, you're pretty much done for the day. And Wellington, knowing this, held his men in place uh, as long as he could as Napoleon pounded them again and again. And finally, the sun is going down and Wellington's getting ready to announce a retreat into defeat for the first time in his life. And he spots on the edge to the west in a field coming through the woods, men in blue coats. And at first he thought Napoleon was bringing up reserves. But after looking through his field glass, he realizes that it is in fact the Prussian army and von Blücher, the Prince of Bismarck. And when in came those 33,000 soldiers and they smashed Napoleon's army and it seemed like the day was lost, and then Wellington later said, in 45 minutes, our defeat was turned to the greatest victory that we could ever imagine. And so also, for the people of God, when it seems like we are in the most desperate situation, God intervenes. No one knows the day or that hour, we must simply keep ourselves ready and waiting. Like a child longing for the return of a long-deployed father, or a wife longing for the return of a long-deployed husband, so let us long for the return of our Jesus to be with us forever, because he will return. It is certain. Now let me point you to one last thing, verses 8 through 13. The end is made delightful by God. In verses 8 through 13, we see Daniel ask his question. 
Uh, and God tells him, Daniel, don't worry. You have a safe inheritance as my servant. Notice at verse 80, he asks the question after saying he didn't understand the previous things. He, um, he, he says, not how long, but what will be the outcome of these things? T- tell me more about these things. And at verse 9, he gets a kind of, a kind of non-answer, really. Daniel, you've received all you're going to get. Go your way. The words are shut up and sealed. In other words, no more will be told to you, Daniel. Nothing new, we can certainly say. Whatever comes after this isn't brand new. Uh, But he does get something. He gets a threefold answer. Uh, An answer for all, verse 10. An answer for some, verses 11 and 12. And an answer for himself, verse 13. Let me have you look at that. Notice the answer he does get. What will be the outcome? Well, there's an answer for all believers here at verse 10. When it, when it tells us that many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked will go on in their wickedness. In other words, Daniel gets the answer that, well, here's the outcome. Things are going to go on as they always have. For a time, some will be sanctified and some will simply go on in evil. Some will sing with the hymn writer, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and Power, Give me a double cure, Lord. Wash away my sins and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's cleansing from the guilt of sin. But they will also ask the Lamb to make them personally spotless as he is. And he will. He purifies them. He refines his people. That's the cleansing from the presence and the power of sin. Jesus deals with the guilt of it. He deals with the power of it. He deals with the presence of it. He will do all these things for his people. And that is as it has always been until the end. But here in the text, we also discover that the wicked shall what? They shall go on acting wickedly, he says. What does that look like? Well, I think Paul's letter to Timothy, the second letter, actually describes this very well. In the last days, Paul says, there will come times of difficulty. Now look at this description. Listen to it. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Is that... You, does that describe you? That's wickedness, friends. You must go to Jesus for cleansing from its guilt and its power if you wish to be saved and enjoy the inheritance before you. 
So some things will go on as they always have until the final end. But there's an answer here, not for, just for all of us. There is an answer here for some certain believers at verses 11 and 12. When you get this, uh, this language of, uh, of the burnt offering being taken away and the abomination that makes desolate set up and then it says there will be 1,290 days and blessed is the one who waits for the 1,335 days. Now what is that about? My best take on it, as far as I know, and commentators are all over the map on this, is that this may be a reference to the three and a half year evil period of Antiochus Epiphanes in the, 16, in, the, in the 160s before Jesus. He figured prominently in chapter 11. He executed believers for owning the scriptures. He executed believers for practicing and observing the Sabbath and practicing the sacraments. He destroyed tens and tens of thousands of believers in that day. And I think what, what's happening here is God is giving you uh, multiple uses of the word end. Uh, you actually see it at the end of verse, uh, in verse 13. The word end is used multiple ways. Go your way until the end and you will rest. That's the end of his life. Uh, but you shall stand in your allotted days, uh, allotted place at the end of days. That's a, a different end in mind. Well, I think what's happening is here is, is, is beginning in chapter 12. You have him looking at the end in terms of the, the first and even the second coming of Jesus at the resurrection. You have him pulling back then to speak a word of comfort to the believers who will face the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes. And he says, blessed are those who wait it out and last to the end, the 1335 days. Uh, time after Antiochus is off the scene will be a blessing. I, I think that's what he's getting at. It is so important, he says, for you who will face that, and they did, to endure. Simply wait, the angel says. Those who do so will be blessed. They will enjoy the blessing of the demise of the cruel enemy of God and his people. That demise of God's enemy is part of the deliverance of God's people. Salvation for God's people means destruction for God's enemies. And though we can say with the prophet Ezekiel that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked... Yet it is a blessing to the people of God who suffer when the hands of their tormentors are disarmed. And so there's a promise here for those who would live through these times, but there is also finally an answer here, a very personal answer, a sweet answer from God himself to the prophet Daniel himself at verse 13. When he says to him, but go your way, Daniel, until the end. As you have served me in the past, serve me until your death. Keep serving me in the courts of King Cyrus and keep praying for God's people and leading them. Don't quit. Don't give up, Daniel, he says to him, for you shall one day rest. You will go to your grave, Daniel, and it will be like peaceful sleep after a long and wearisome journey. And thirdly, you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. 
Now, Daniel, you stand in my grace. One day you will stand in glory. And isn't it sweet that the language used to encourage him is allotted place. It's the language of Joshua 14 to 21, used some 25 or so times to speak of the language of uh, the, the, and in the terms of, and the promises of the land inheritance allotted to the tribes of Israel and the clans of Israel in the promised land. And God uses that very language to speak of Daniel's everlasting life. Why? Because Daniel, you haven't lived in that land since your youth and you long for it. And Daniel, you have longed for the restoration of the glory of God's name attached to that land and that people. And Daniel, be assured, you will enjoy your allotted share in that inheritance. Yet as we know, In a heavenly country, a better country, the new heavens and the new earth, not in just some dry, dusty place in the Middle East. As all the saints look for something better than that little plot of promised land. God, he says, I have settled your future. Go about your duty, it is clear. Fear not For your inheritance, it is yours. And so Jesus says to all of us, in this world you will have trouble, but fear not. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that you may be where I am also. And on that day he will say to his people, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these exceedingly great and precious promises. We pray that you would lift us up in weary days, give us hope and despair, encourage us in our walks, strengthen us for our journey, for we ask it all. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Let me invite you to stand.